0: Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with author, speaker, owner, and philanthropist, Angela Burgess. She empowers nonprofits to transform the world. As the president and CEO of Broad Oaks Consulting, she's a trusted advisor to nonprofit organizations on strategic planning, revenue generation, and investment development. She grew up a middle-class kid in Iowa, but always had the burning desire to do something big with her life. She double majored in Spanish and communication studies in college, which led her to a decades-long career career in wealth management. Today, she gives back to the community through volunteer work with foster kids, a prison ministry, and the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. She's got a great story. Enjoy this interview.
1: Yes, we got it. We're live. <laughs> Who's that guitarist back there? Is that B.B. King? Yes. I love him. I had, I have a good friend of mine who um, he lives in Vegas now, yeah. He could do these blues cruises, and him and his wife actually met him before he passed, like a year or two before he passed. No
2: way. Yeah,
1: they had a picture with him, and it was called the oh. Blues Bender or something, but it was like a cruise, and it was a big deal. But yeah, he was he was there, and he's a cool you know, cat.
2: I had the chance to see him perform live with my grandmother when he was 88. Wow. And it was just such a neat experience. I mean, it was he was obviously at the end of his career, but I have always loved blues and jazz and something I inherited from my grandparents who were complete, you know, 1940s music aficionados. And um, it was just a really neat experience. And then I actually ended up buying that picture in um Lahaina, which is Very no cool. longer there. Yeah.
1: So where are you located?
2: Houston, Texas.
1: Houston, Texas. Okay. Excellent. Um, yeah. We, I just went and saw the Astros here in Kansas City about a week and a half ago. And I couldn't believe how many people were there and how small Altuve is. He's just this little thing.
2: We <laughs> call him Tiny Tuve.
1: Man. And he, and his mouth moves the whole time. Like Mustakas was our guy that talked to everybody. Like the whole time he's out there, he's kicking, he's spitting, he's talking. Like, oh, yeah. He's talking to himself. He's talking yep. to birds that are flying yep. by. Like the guy won't
2: stop. I know. I know. Yeah. He's, we call, we always say he's so little, but so mighty.
1: Oh, my. Yeah. He, yeah. And he was, he was <laughs> slapping that ball around. I think he got on, I think he was like three for four that day. So, yeah, he, he moves.
2: It's incredible. And it's even, you know, that was one of the things in this series. We got to, I mean, no offense. It's, you guys know, you're not the, the best team in baseball this year, but I'm right, sitting right. there going, why is this happening? I
1: know. I, you know, I, I don't know why it happened either, other than I know that they don't have anything to lose. That's it. And they just got to a point where it's like the only thing that they could do before they leave the door before spring training next year is to be at a first place team. That's pretty much it.
2: Agreed. But I mean so, it was it was a great series for y'all.
1: Yeah. Well, the one thing that I wish would have happened for Zach Grinky is that remember when he got pulled in game seven? Yeah. Man, because he needs a ring. And he yeah. gave he was the reason why we got our championships. Yeah. We got all those players in that trade. And it's like, I wish as devoted and as cool as he is that he could have got something. But I agree. What are you gonna do? You know. Move on. Things happen. So it's great, it's great to meet you. And I want to begin our conversation in earnest with what we lived through for the last three years. Yeah. How did you get how did you get through COVID and how (laughs) did it change you?
2: So it's interesting. I had started, I started my own business in 2018 in nonprofit consulting. And I started, I had no clients. I didn't have a business name. I didn't have any clients. In fact, I quit my job up in Chicago and came home and said to my husband, "Um, Quit my job starting a business. And he's like, What do you know about running a business? Absolutely nothing. He said, How many clients do you have? I said, None. It's going to be great. I promise you, it's going to be great. <laughs> so, I had started building this business and I had built a pretty successful business between the fall of 2018 and early 2020. And then, as soon as the pandemic hit in early 2020, I thought to myself, well, shoot, in the nonprofit community, as everyone is tightening purse strings, surely the first thing to go is going to be fundraising nonprofit consultants like me. So, I actually sat down and thought, okay, let's just assume early on that business is going to slow down. What can I do to really make a difference in my community and, you know, stay busy? I'm kind of one of those people that likes to have multiple plates spinning all the time. And I had had a donor when I was captive to a nonprofit in Chicago who volunteered as a court appointed guardian ad litem or a CASA worker, they call it in some states here were, we're child advocates. Um, and I decided in that spring that I was going to see if I could become a certified child advocate. So I ended up uh, making that move. It was a 40 hour training on zoom. And this was when zoom was new. It was so incredibly clunky and cumbersome and awful. I mean, literally for 40 hours, they just sat there and talked to us, no breakout rooms, no videos. It was so painful. And the homework was so cumbersome, but it just felt like it was something I was being called to do. The challenge became is, um, was that fundraising consulting didn't slow down because everyone was trying to figure out how do we reposition and how do we keep fundraising because people need to eat more than ever. People need housing support more than ever. People, you know, child abuse rates went up. um, Abuse rates of spouses went up. So you had more people needing services than ever before, but you also lost for a lot of nonprofits that main fundraising stream of events. Yeah. So one thing I'm good at is helping organizations diversify revenue streams. So for me, I felt like um, I actually just came out with a book last week and there was a part in there. I felt like I was driving a bus and it just kind of kept coming to these rolling stops. But instead of people getting on, it was just cats, like cats everywhere. And I just kept trying to herd the cats and keep everyone safe in the bus and keep the bus moving in a forward direction. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been a little bit crazy the last yeah. few years.
1: It certainly has. So, you know, on paper, you have all these things. You're an author, speaker, (laughs) owner, philanthropist, but let's get you in front of a bunch of third graders at a career day. And one of the kids looks up and says, what do you do for a living? How do you get to the essence of it and explain it to a child?
2: In front of a third grader, I would say I make people's lives better every day.
1: Okay. So what did you want to be in the third grade? What was your dream to grow up and become?
2: I wanted to make people's lives better every day.
1: So you're living the dream. <laughs> I like it.
2: And, it, you know, it's confusing. And I think that's where if you look at my career on paper, you think, you know, you either think, wow, this woman is a, a renaissance woman, or you think that I fail a lot and have to start over a lot. the truth is, is that we can't actually measure in making people's lives better every day in college. So you got to pick something. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it's a challenge for a lot of people. Even talking to youth today, they, they don't know what they, nobody knows what they want to, I shouldn't say no one, but few people know what they want to be when they grow up.
1: Yeah. It takes a while. So let's go back to where you were born and raised and how these seeds got into you to want to help people, to want to diversify and to be a business owner and to help others and speak and write. How did all that happen?
2: I was born into a middle class family in Iowa. I'm from Iowa City, Iowa. I had I'm so fortunate. I have a wonderful mom, a wonderful dad. I had an older brother, just kind of your what you would think of as the run-of-the-mill Midwestern you know nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really fortunate. I never wanted for anything. We didn't have a lavish lifestyle. My parents worked really hard. They had two weeks of vacation every year. One week they would take off in the summer to paint the house. And the other week we would go on vacation to Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri. And um, it was a a really nice childhood. I just always had kind of this thing inside of me that felt like I wanted more. And I think when you're a kid and even when you're a young adult and into your adulthood, that definition of more is very, very elusive. Mm -hmm. And for me, it really, it started... um, I never felt really confident as a kid. I think, you know, something you don't think about is that a lot of your experiences in grade school are largely shaped by your teachers, where they sit you in a classroom, who they have you befriend, um, kind of groups that they put you in. And so early on in kindergarten, I kind of got lumped in with this group of kids. Um, I've always been very empathetic. And so my kindergarten teacher had placed me with a couple of kids that were, you um, not the most popular kids, and maybe struggled a little bit, hoping that I would lift them up. But all that happened is that all of us became a little bit ostracized from the rest of the pack. And that stuck with me all of grade school. So I was never really popular, didn't get invited to um, a lot of, you know, birthday parties and that sort of thing. And so I just had this thought, like, okay, let's just say that you missed the popular bus. What if you could be on the smart bus? And so I worked really hard to learn things and do things differently. Um, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, we had to do this project where you interview someone. Did you ever, ever have to do that project? Oh, yeah. The interview project? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, and my thing was, I wanted to interview Dr. James Van Allen, who discovered the Van Allen radiation belts in space. Yeah. And my teacher told me um, that I shouldn't be wasting Dr. Van Allen's time, that I needed to come up with someone else. And I went home and told my mom that. And she said, well, he's in the phone book you know, you could, you could call him and see, and it wasn't, there wasn't a total disconnect there. Both of my grandfathers, my dad's dad and my mom's dad knew him very casually. So at least our last name was somewhat familiar. And my mom gave me the courage to do it. She, I picked up the phone that night and I called and got his wife on the phone. And she said, you know, he's not home from work yet, but I'll give him the message. And he called me back. And I think for me, that was my first experience Not only doing something that was, I mean, it's kind of a big deal for a sixth grader to call a world-renowned scientist and ask for an interview for a project, but more so the fact that he was willing to share his time with me. And back to your earlier question, I was in awe in my interview with him at how he was able to explain these very complex concepts to me on a level that I could understand. Yeah. And that really stuck with me. I think, you know, again, when you're 12, you don't really know what to do with that. But as I look at my life, one of the things I have always strived for is to help other people lift themselves up, people who are looking to become the the very best version of themselves or even help them identify what that is and then give them the tools that they need to get there.
1: You know, it's interesting because that's why Stephen Hawking was so profound, because he could take the complex and he could simplify it. So did you ever go to Tantara in the Lake of the Ozarks?
2: No, I've never actually been there. How funny is that?
1: It's it's weird because um, Jimmy Buffett actually he just passed. He turned that whole resort area into Margaritaville. Yeah, which is wild. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a yeah, lot lots of things have changed down there. So let me ask you this: of all of these ambitions that you have, who's been a hero for you? Who's been your fuel?
2: So many people. I don't think that you can point to any just one person. I think there are people who come into your life at that at that exact moment and they're supposed to be there. I mean, I think about for me, it went on, it was Mr. Brems, my eighth-grade teacher. And then it was this guy who was friends with the son of some of my parents, you know, who took five minutes and gave me some advice that changed my life and has changed the trajectory of my life. It was the president of my college. It was. Um, you know, my, my dad's mother, it was, you go on and on someone in your department, or even just someone who says something random to you one day, and you think to yourself, huh, that really makes a lot of sense. So I think that, um, as you look at your life, there are these people that come into your life. And I think all too often, we discount that, like, just because you're not a steady presence in my life for a prolonged period of time doesn't mean that you don't have something incredibly invaluable to offer me.
1: So let's take that baton from the sixth grade for that interview and go to right now. If you could have a dream interview or a dream meeting with somebody, anybody on the planet right now, who would it be?
2: Anyone on the planet right now. That is a wonderful question. I think it would probably be... And the truth is, is I could probably get an interview with her if I asked um, a woman who's really shaped me these last three years named Dory Clark.
1: Okay. Okay. So let me ask you this. I I, I meant to do this when we were talking about BB King. What would be a dream show for you to see? A dream concert?
2: That's a great question, too. Um... I wish i could answer that
1: okay we can we can circle I know. back
2: sorry what? i yeah. don't you know to be honest is this is going to sound terrible um you know what dream concert it would be a small venue i think the reason i'm not a huge live music um you know the fill the arena type person mostly yeah. because the sound quality isn't that great sure And I really struggle with that. But I think if you if you think about a dream concert, it would be a small, intimate venue, whether it's 50 people or 100 people. um, And it would have to be the King George Strait.
1: Oh, yeah. Nice. You know, one one time in Kansas City, we used to have the stadium uh, Kemper Arena that was down by the river. I remember. Prince played there in the 80s and he went up to the Grand Emporium up in Midtown. And he, no one really knew it. So they just like said, Prince is here. We're selling tickets. They went fast. People freaked out and he played that club and it was wild. You know, it was kind of an intimate show.
2: Okay. If we went dead or alive, I would definitely go with Prince.
1: Yeah. Right. Of course. (laughs) Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. That would be great.
2: hundred percent. But you kind of caught me off guard with someone who is still on earth.
1: Yeah. Right. No, I I get it. Yeah. We can open that. I mean, can we go with John
2: Lennon? I would definitely say John Lennon. 100%
1: Hundred percent for sure. I did see a uh, a reincarnation. There's a band called Rain, and they cover all of the Beatles' generations. Like oh no way, generationally. So they were at Starlight this summer, and they That's did awesome. like the four different phases, and it was wild because they had it down. They looked like them. They had the costumes, you know. Awesome. They and they had all these commercials that would fly up in between each of the segments, and then when they finally did Sergeant Pepper's, they had all of the outfits, and it was magnanimous. It was pretty cool. That's
2: amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, with all these people that we've talked about, there's high levels of motivation. What is that for you every day? What makes you be who you are, get out of bed, accomplish what you want to get done? What is that?
2: It's the idea that each of us has an opportunity to change the world. And I think we get so wrapped up in the day-to-day monotony of our lives that we miss the small opportunities to really make a difference. I've I've always been frustrated. I mean, as a kid, I, I didn't understand it. And I thought it was just because I was a kid. I still don't understand it. I mean, you turn on the, the news, you read the newspaper, they present you with the problem. They never talk about the solution ever. You know, it's like interest rates are high. End of story. And you're like, okay, well, what does that mean? And how do we fix it? Or, you know, inflation is on the rise. It's bad or it's good or whatever it is. Right. But there's never any sort of notion of why this is a problem and how do we address it? Unless you, you know, read the Economist and Financial Times, which I do, but by and large, the average person turning on the news at night is sort of like everyone these five people got murdered in your city today. Uh That's it. Right. But the truth is, is that there are all of these people and all of these organizations actually working to address the core issues as to why all these things are happening. And we can all play a part in that. So I do have hanging on my wall in my bedroom, a picture of the Lorax. And if you remember the very last line from the Lorax is, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Yeah. And I feel like that's something I do. I care a whole awful lot about so many things. And so what gets me out of bed every morning is that I know that every single thing that I take off my list today puts us one step closer to being better communities, brighter communities, and opportunity for each of us to really take the individual gifts that we have and let them shine.
1: So, of all of the clients and all of the situations you've been in, what is your best success story?
2: Um You know, it's it's that's a tough question because I think success looks different for everyone. And It could be I did when I was in Chicago, just for some volunteer work, I was a medical and legal advocate for victims of sexual assault. And I had a really, really tough case. My last case before I moved here to Houston was really tough. Um, And for her success was simply committing to getting into therapy after she had survived her, her trauma that she had gone through. On an aggregate basis, for the last three and a half years, I guess, I've been serving as the executive director of a nonprofit down here called Raise Up Families. And I i mean, I loved the organization. I was a donor of the organization before I became the executive director. And one of the things I loved about it was they, they had this track record. First of all, a nonprofit that's been tracking data for 25 years is unheard of, but they had. And they had, they had this track record of helping low-income families Increase their income by 35 to 40 percent in just the nine months that they're in this program, and I was always really impressed by that until a year into the job. I took a look at what that actually meant in median household income and realized that even after that 40 percent income increase, they were still only making you know $33,000 a year. Which on a family of four or family of five, you're never going to get ahead on that, right? So I really sat down and thought about why is this? Why is this happening? And what can we do? Again, let, what, what if we cared a whole awful lot? Like what, what could we do here? And together with my partner, we came up with um, really just reorganizing the program a little bit. And so I think what I'm most proud of on an aggregate basis is that now when families enter our program, within nine months, they're experiencing a 70% income increase. Okay. Yeah. And that is serving as a launch pad. So we're taking families going from making $24,000 a year to making $44,000 a year in you know a, a very short period of time. Um, it is just a huge win for them and really sets them up to continue to grow in earnings and grow in confidence. And I think that to me, when you look at a scalable outcome, I'm so proud of that.
1: So if you have a dream tonight, you run into your 20-year-old version of yourself and you could give that younger version of you a piece of advice based on the wisdom you've gained in your life up to this point, what would you tell that young version of you?
2: I would tell my young version of me that life is long. We spend all this time talking about how short life is and to seize the moment. And that's absolutely true. You know, you do want to seize the moment, but you don't have to do it all today. You are going to learn. You are going to grow. You're going to meet people along the way. And you will have myriad opportunities to reinvent, to continue to build, to continue to to, um, habit stack, so to speak, as James Clear says in his book. And that life is long and your opportunity to self-actualize is abundant.
1: So what are you the proudest of? Of everything that you've done in your life so far, what is it that you're the proudest of?
2: I'm the proudest of the work I've done with child advocates as a quarter and guardian ab item. I look at, um, I've only had four kids. These cases can last for a very, very long time, but there are four children now in Houston who it's, this might make me cry a little bit. Um, you know, who would have had really tough lives could have ended up homeless, um, abused, trafficked that are, living full, happy, vibrant lives surrounded by people who love them. Yeah, And I think that, um, you know, we do so many things. We all have to earn a living. We all have bills to pay. We all want to enjoy our lives. But if I look back on it, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that I truly was able to save four lives.
1: So Angela, everyone has a perception of you. There's all these pockets of people in your life, family, friends, clients, colleagues, those that you're helping. But ultimately, you're in control. What is mm-hmm. your perception of you? Who do you think you are?
2: I am a dorky fifth grader with a perm, braces, and acne. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice. <laughs> a
2: hundred. I mean, I honestly, I am. I just, um, I wonder so many times. Like, I wake up and I wonder, you know, how is this my life? And I've had great opportunities to do some really amazing things in the last few years. I have a, a wonderful husband, amazing friends, and I just. I'm in awe of that every day. I think is again. You go back to your childhood. I didn't. I I wanted something more, but I did not know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And now that it's here, I'm still just amazed by it every day.
1: So, if anyone out there wants to indulge in all things you, where do they go? Where's the best place?
2: The best to, the best place to go is my website, which is www. Well, if you don't even need that. HTTPS backslash backslash at the back Um, My book is for sale on the website as well. You just go to book in the upper left hand corner. That will it's it's a motivational autobiography. It chronicles my strange and bizarre career journey, how I've gone about making all of these um, bizarre choices that a lot of people didn't understand in the pursuit of realizing my full potential.
0: What a great story. Great energy. Thank you so much for opening up today. I appreciate it. Thank
2: you. I appreciate your time.
0: Absolutely. Best of luck.
2: All right. Thanks. Take good care. care.